So uh, let's get back to these cases. Um, our gentleman is, uh, we've seen his labs. This is a man who has ulcerative colitis. He had been hospitalized, but now he's in a clinical and endoscopic remission, presents with a mild anemia, hemoglobin of 11, hematocrit 33, platelets 450,000. He's uh, microcytic, as Gary was discussing, and uh, probably an inappropriately low reticulocyte count. His serum iron is eight, excuse me, ferritin is 18, 12% saturation. Um, serum iron is 45 and his CRP is normal. Gary, do we need any other tests in this individual? I think you have all the testing you need to really define the uh, nature of the anemia. I don't think that uh, you would need other tests because ulcerative colitis, we're not talking about Crohn's. We certainly would want to get a vitamin D level in clinical practice as well at some point because we know vitamin D levels are healthy for individuals and there's small investigator-initiated trials that show benefit for active disease. But I think in general this is a pretty standard case that you'd see in the office and I wouldn't think that there are many other tests at this point in time. Certainly in the future you want to get others. But you would define him as having? Iron deficiency anemia. Okay. And the reason is because your ferritin is low, you have inactive disease, so this is a patient in remission, the CRP is low, and the transferrin saturation is 15% or less, so this fits the iron deficiency anemia scenario. And Ed, inactive ulcerative colitis, clinical remission ulcerative colitis, uh, iron deficiency anemia straight up, how would you manage him? Well, I'd first ask him if he has any history of intolerance. Has he ever taken iron before? If he hasn't, or if he says, yeah, I can tolerate iron, I typically would start with just one oral iron tablet a day. I typically use ferrous sulfate. Sometimes I'll use um, that in combination with vitamin C. And I might just start one a day. He's, his, his anemia is relatively mild, so I think you could start low and work your way up. But if, if, he, if he gave me any history of intolerance to oral iron, then I would go with a parenteral iron product. All right. So just for reinforcement, Gary, where is oral iron absorbed? So it's taken in and it's absorbed the duodenum and in the proximal jejunum through the enterocytes. So back to Ed. Some of the oral iron formulations, you talked about your preferences, iron sulfate. Um, one of the formulations you mentioned is the polysaccharide complex. It's a high-dose uh, iron formulation. The polysaccharide does what? Why is it in a polysaccharide? It delays the the Right, I mean, it's, it, it's your, right, so it's, it's a sort of a delayed release enteral type So delivery. a number of years ago, I thought that this high-dose oral iron would be a great formulation for our patients because it was one pill versus, you know, that had 10 times the amount of iron that the iron sulfate had. But it, it appears that it turns out that it bypasses the place that iron is actually absorbed approximately in the uh, duodenum. So I'm not, a, I don't know, are you aware of any studies comparing those different iron formulations? 
Not, off, not offhand, but it's interesting to note how Ed said one a day. And many people, I'm sure, in the community and in academics and elsewhere practice with TID dosing. And as you go up with the frequency, you get more side effects digestive-wise, if you would. But you really just need 325 milligrams once daily. Now, in, your, in the graph that showed the uh, compared oral iron to iron sucrose, you showed that for the first two weeks, there was no difference with either one, and then the sucrose jumped up. Why two weeks? What's the delay in increase in hemoglobin? I don't have a great explanation for that physiologically, but um, I, you know, it, it, it may have something to do, you, know, you wonder about adherence, um, you know, things like that. Well, I think that both took two weeks, the point being that it takes about 10 days before you're going to start to see an elevation because it takes time to absorb the iron, process it, and actually build red blood cells. So the point is with either oral or IV iron, don't look five days later. You're not going to see a significant jump. It takes about 10 days before you're going to see any uh, change within, uh, within that. And Steve, so if one of the questions was how long do you wait after giving oral iron to reevaluate the parameters, it's at least two weeks. Yeah, in the clinical trials, the end point, if you look in the iron trials, is two weeks for a response. And that's the time frame that you'd expect in clinical practice as well. It's not wrong to check it more frequently depending on the scenario, but if it starts going down, you're going in the wrong direction. Um, this is something I'm unfamiliar with and a question from the audience which says that a recent up-to-date uh, article suggested treating with every other day oral iron. I'm not uh, familiar with the rationale for that. It depends on the severity of the anemia. And if you have someone that has uh, more moderate anemia, that may not be uh, as smart to do because it's really your body is efficient at taking up iron and it will adhere to, uh, it'll take it up very well and it won't uh, dump as much. But if you remember what I pointed out, how little it's absorbed, one to two milligrams a day is really absorbed. So if you give too much and it overloads the system, uh, you don't necessarily need it. But I think it's a matter of the severity and the acuity of the situation is totally variable. And uh, from a pediatrician, uh, says that um, used to seeing a dose of three to six milligrams per kilogram of elemental iron for iron deficiency anemia in kids. Is this different in adults? So let's calculate, three millig five milligrams in a, what, how much do kids weigh? 20 kilos, so that would be 100 milligrams of oral iron. Um, it's a bit more than we actually would give with adults. Yeah. If, the, if it has 60 milligrams in a uh, the 325 iron sulfate, right? Yeah. I think that was. Yeah, and I think the theme we keep going back to is you don't need a lot of oral iron. Um, if a person has normal duodenal absorption, you don't need. You, again, that's why in my practice I rarely give more than one tablet a day of oral iron because I think you're just going to see more side effects if you try to give more. And there's a limitation of absorption, right. Right. Even, even in healthy individuals. Okay, on to the next uh, case. 
Um, this is the young woman. So with, Steve, can I yes, make a point you, on the first Of course case. you may. The other thing I mentioned was this is not the only thing you do. You want to see the response of the patient to the iron. So at least two weeks you want to check a CBC and then repeat iron studies in, say, a month or so to see if it's persistent and it's adequate and ensure that that patient stays in remission and perhaps six months later to recheck. So it's important to keep an eye on things once someone does have anemia to ensure their body stores are replete and they stay that way. And I think that that uh, goes for both oral or IV iron repletion. Um, we, um, we trust, but we monitor. We trust, but verify sure. in that situation. So this is the young woman with ileal Crohn's disease who had an ileal resection. She's on azathioprine and metronidazole. If you remember, she presents with some anemia symptoms as well as paresthesias. Her white count is 4,000, perhaps reflecting the azathioprine. Hemoglobin is 9, hematocrit 26, platelet count 250,000. Her MCV is 88, MCHC 30, a low reticulocyte count, low serum iron, low serum saturation, um, TIBC, and uh, iron, as you can see them, and again, a normal CRP. Uh, Gary, is there any additional information you need from her? I think the first thing is a history, Steve, that you pointed out, the paresthesias, and obviously that can be caused by many different things. Um, one could have B12 deficiency with ileal disease, so a B12 level or a urinary methylmalonic acid level might be important to look at directly. Plus, you have medication that's associated with neuropathy as well, metronidazole. So I think these are things to consider. You know, less common things, longstanding chronic disease, one thinks of amyloid, though we rarely see it. Um, and then certainly one can have paresthesias with vertebral compression fractures from steroid use in the past uh, if there's impingement on a disc. So again, things in our differential diagnosis come to mind. But those, those are the first things I would try to address. In addition, you clearly have laboratory parameters that are significantly abnormal, and once again, suggesting the presence of iron deficiency anemia. So um, just from the clinical scenario, by the way, this is a woman who had an ileal resection. Um, she's got anastomotic ulcers. And uh, what do you think of that? Not pre-anastomotic. But just, uh, if it's my wife, tell her I'll be home tomorrow night, late. <laughs> so I think this is something that was recently presented at DDW. Jean-Fred Colombel uh, looked at retrospectively those patients that had resection of the ileocecal region and had uh, I0 or I1 lesions with anastomotic ulceration. And they behaved differently as to saying that they had no disease recurrence it had more aggressive recurrence, if you would, and they behaved sort of those patients that were with recurrence of disease. So it's retrospective, it's limited, it was not large collaborative numbers, but I think it's an important message that we should be looking at these patients in the future, perhaps in a prospective way to say, should we be aggressively treating these and look more frequently than the standard looks we had done in the past? Uh, Ed, comments on that anastomotic ulcer? 
Yeah, I think there's some debate about, um, you know, there's some back and forth in the literature right now about whether that just having the anastigmatic ulcers increases the risk of recurrence. I think the, the, the studies are starting to sway in the direction that it does increase the risk of recurrence. And, um, you know, you could say maybe in this person, uh, should they escalate therapy on that basis? Um, it, it, it certainly should be considered. I think this patient has at least iron deficiency anemia, but maybe on top of it, some something else. And like Gary said, check the B12. There may be some component of chronic disease here as well. And it's important to note, Steve, as well, that patients that have, let's say, colon cancer and you do a resection, you virtually never see those anastomotic right, rings. exactly. So it's something specific for IBD, you know, itself, Crohn's per se, more so than, say, you see where someone has had diverticulitis and they've had a resection or other reasons. I would just point out that I've, I've seen a number of these patients who present with chronic anemia and continue to need iron uh, replacement, uh, either oral or uh, intravenously. And I think that that can cause a gradual, certainly can cause a gradual leak in those patients. And don't forget other causes, right? So, I mean, I, I can't tell you how many times a year I see somebody who has like, gets referred for a double balloon and they have a 10 centimeter diaphragmatic hernia and Cameron erosions and everybody wants to do the double balloon but fix the hernia uh -huh. and the uh, anemia will go away. Yes, both of these patients had GERD. Uh, would you stop their PPIs if they're taking and if they're iron deficient? I guess you'd reassess, yeah, you'd right? have to consider their GERD yeah. because you know too much too many many times in all of our practices, the patients uh, get hospitalized, they're put on IV steroids, they're automatically put on a PPI, and all of a sudden they're on a PPI uh, forever with no, never reassessment of that. So I think that those are all good points. Uh, along those lines, one of the questions, Ed, is that you're giving iron along with vitamin C. Uh, they want to know how much vitamin C do you give with it? Oh, just a you know the the standard you know what what is it um, two hundred milligrams or yeah it's like it's not you don't have to give a lot, yeah. and then, but be careful with vitamin C and Crohn's you don't want to give too much because it can promote oxalate stones, and that's one of the things we always are fraught with oxalate <coughs> kidney stones are things that can come about so. In UC, no problem, and in most Crohn's patients, no problem. And, but what about this woman with an ileal resection? She's very disposed to hyperoxaluria, as uh, you point out. So one could do a urinalysis and look for oxalate crystals and then assess if they're not there, then it's reasonable to consider it. Because we often want the patients to get absorption that's uh, on the good side. I think most people would say don't start with vitamin C directly and just try iron. If they need the vitamin C, one can do it. If they're on a PPI, then I think you need something like a vitamin C. I guess we're perhaps in a post-physiology phase of practicing medicine, but I remember being on the wards and if I had a medical student on the wards and I had a patient like this who was anemic, who had a hemoglobin of nine, I would ask that medical student, how much iron replacement does the patient actually need? And we would go through the calculation of the grams needed, how much hemoglobin has, how much iron in hemoglobin, and hence how many grams of hemoglobin needed to be replaced, how much iron was in there, and how we would administer it. Um, and now, nowadays, when you're giving IV iron, 
Are you calculating an iron need, or are you just administering? And if I have you're just to say administering, not, yeah. how much? Yeah. And then what do you do? So if it was if I was giving uh, say fair carboxymaltose, I'd give 750 at a time, and I would do two infusions, so a total of 1500. If it's iron sucrose, 200 at a time, four or five infusions uh, separated by a week each, and then for um, uh, Ferrimoxitol, it's usually 510, uh, two infusions, and separated by at least three or four days. Yeah, I think the prior calculation, and I forget the name of it, was primarily because our, our initial iron, um, parenteral iron was iron dextran, which was given in one slug uh, if the patients could tolerate it, and you kind of calculated how much iron dextran they needed. Yeah, the Ganzoni equation is what it's called, Steve. And thank you. And it and you, it's been will you shown, tell us what it is? It's been shown mm -hmm. that it really doesn't represent well what the iron deficits are. And treating as Ed does, as Steve does, as I do, is just to treat and see how they do is the best way to do it. It's been looked in studies. So I think it's something that's of the past and no longer used in clinical practice. Um, Back to Ed, can oral iron exacerbate disease activity in IBD? Um, well, again, it's hard to sort out because, right, is, is it uh, just the GI intolerance or is it actually making the inflammation work worse? I'm not sure that we know that, but bottom line is if it's not tolerated, then they're not going to take it. So you have to move on to something else. So I have a very low threshold for just moving to IV iron. I'm lucky because I can work, I work at a place where I can literally just send them over to the infusion center that afternoon and they're gonna get their IV iron and I just order it myself. I don't get hematology involved, I just do it myself. A question is occasionally, and you mentioned this, Ed, uh, a low uh, plasma phosphate is observed following IV iron infusion. Do we need to monitor for that routinely? I don't monitor, monitor it routinely, but if I have a patient who is having unusual symptoms after an iron infusion, sometimes they'll have a malaise or fatigue or flu-like symptoms, I, I might consider checking it. And can we postulate the mechanism of low phosphate in that situation? Uh, I, I think iron is always given as a complex to either sucrose or dextran or something. I believe there's probably some uh, binding of the phosphate, serum phosphate, to one of the complexes that may lower it transiently. But um, it is not something you routinely need to monitor. It's going to be seen more in patients who get a big dose of intravenous iron, particularly iron dextran uh, in patients. And I think Ed provided the monitoring strategies for the other uh, parenteral formulations that just require a 15-minute infusion and then about 30 minutes of observation for any of the low blood pressure risks or um, tingling that, that were actually mentioned. Um, let's see. Great questions that you all uh, provided. I think that deals with most of the questions. Uh, so to sum up, when to screen for anemia, it's obviously in patients who present with symptoms, potential symptoms of anemia, which would be fatigue or palpitations and severe anemia. 
um, individuals who present with pallor, but some of the subtle symptoms that Gary mentioned, restless leg syndrome, and, and the number one complaint of our patients is fatigue, particularly in Crohn's disease. And it's been demonstrated in European populations that the fatigue may actually, and Gary mentioned this, may precede anemia as a manifestation of iron deficiency. So it would be an indication to monitor uh, iron stores as well. And Gary also emphasized the other situations, uh, such as drug therapy, such as resection in our patient, uh, that may make them at risk for other deficiencies, such as vitamin B12. Folic acid deficiency, we rarely see more, since most of our food sources are um, supplemented. Perhaps patients who are on sulfasalazine, but it's been a good while since I've seen anyone presenting with uh, folic acid deficiency. So one of the things you're supposed to supplement <coughs> with, if you use a bile salt binding agent, folate may become deficient, so the cholestyramine or other things, and that might be a scenario where it can come about if you measure it. Most people don't check it. So the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation now has a care pathway for anemia begins with an assessment of hemoglobin and ferritin as a, quote, universal screening. For patients who are uh, non-anemic and have iron deficiency, which would be defined as an iron uh, less, a ferritin less than 30, assess their iron, making certain that their iron stores are repleted. On the other hand, if they have inadequate iron stores or inflammation, in individuals who uh, are inflamed, the absorption is going to be reduced from oral iron because of the hepcidin mechanism that Gary mentioned, and most of these patients should be uh, treated uh, with iron therapy. Now that iron therapy can either be oral or intravenous. In patients with inactive IBD, oral iron, 30 to 100 milligrams of elemental iron per day that would be covered with uh, Ed's 60 milligram formulation of iron, um, uh, iron sulfate. Or if they have active IBD, IV iron because of the reduced absorption of oral iron and the potential interaction with symptoms. They recommend reassessment, as Gary did, about a month later, not within the first two weeks. Many patients, even if they are receiving IV iron, will require maintenance therapy with IV iron. For instance, this woman who had the uh, ulceration at the anastomosis is disposed to more chronic types of anemia and may need long-term uh, replacement. So it has been put within the CCFA uh, care pathway. It is, again, another quality indicator in many of our practices. And uh, uh, making certain that we are replacing iron in individuals with anemia, anemia and then monitoring are part of our quality metrics, as uh, Frank Frey and uh, the CCFA and, and ACG have recommended.